1: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael Pina of SB Nation. Now, Michael, one of my favorite memories from 2019 was snorkeling with giant sea tortoises uh, out in Hawaii and these beautiful, gigantic creatures would just swim around under the water forever. And then every once in a while, they would gracefully climb to the surface poke their little heads and mouths out above the water's edge and take in a deep, big, deep breath of uh, air and then descend back into the water for God knows how long. And I feel like one of those giant tortoises right now, Michael, I think you are too. We've been through a crazy, you know, kind of two week stretch here with the trade deadline, with the unfortunate passing uh, of Kobe Bryant and the eight others on the Calabasas uh, helicopter crash. And we're about to dive back into the deep end here in a couple days with Chicago All-Star Weekend. So what I thought we would do is use this episode to take a breath, to kind of pick up some of the pieces from the last few weeks and to set the stage uh, for what should be a really fun upcoming weekend uh, in Chicago. So Michael, one of the things that we have basically completely ignored Uh, over the last month or so has been the Toronto Raptors. They have not lost a game, and we're we're talking on Monday, they have not lost a game since January 12th, 14-game winning streak. They've been absolutely sensational, and I think it's time that we pay them a little bit of respect. I'm sure a lot of termites out there are expecting it from us, demanding it from us, Michael. So tell me this, what has struck you the most uh, about this Toronto Raptors' uh, recent push And how seriously do we have to take them? Like, do we need to start putting them back into this contender conversation, this, you know, potential back-to-back title conversation, which nobody saw coming six months ago? I think they deserve to
2: be there. Yeah. Um, You know, as you said, they won 14 in a a row, beating some respectable competition. Uh, You know, they have the second best defense in the NBA in 2020. They have the best offense since their streak started on January 15th. They've been doing it with guys in and out of the lineup. They've been doing it with rookies. You know, Terrence Davis shooting 50% from the three-point line. Uh, they've been doing it with, uh, obviously, Pascal Siakam, uh, who is continues to just ascend as this uh, all-star caliber player, uh, going up from the role player that he was last season. Uh, Fred Van Fleet has been excellent. Kyle Lowry has been Kyle Lowry. Uh, so I would put them... Uh, for sure, in the in the, the title contender, legitimate title contender conversation. And it's just, it's super remarkable because you look at where, you know, you, you go to, they, they win the championship, they lose a player who, in my opinion, is the best player in the entire world. And you're not supposed to still be good when that happens. You're supposed to take a significant step backwards, and they have not done that.
1: Right. I love how confident and how forthright you are in your analysis. I mean, I I want to disagree, but I find myself leaning on conventional wisdom to be like, oh, come on, they're not going to be in this conversation, right? Like, that's the best argument is that we haven't seen it before. And remember, it took all of us months to wrap our minds around the idea that a finals MVP and Kawhi Leonard was going to leave a championship team immediately after winning the title, right? And that kind of threw everybody for a loop and made some people think Toronto should blow it up. I, I was really never in that camp but I didn't see them being this good and this fearsome. I mean, it's been elite play on both sides of the ball here recently. It's, uh, to me owes a lot to the chemistry and the cohesion factor that comes from coach Nick Nurse, uh, who I view kind of as a, a favorite right now uh, for the coach of the year race. But it also comes from a lot of experienced players who have played a lot of minutes together. And they're clicking on, uh, you know, both sides of the ball. And they're also very versatile. So it doesn't really matter how you play, they can play your style or they can match up with your style and take you out of what you want to do. Um I do think that the kind of the last remaining hiccup for them or or hang up other than this, you know, Kawhi Leonard, wait a minute, what's happening? Uh, Kind of hangover effect would be the late game situations, right? Because they've been able to sustain just fine through the regular season without Kawhi, finding different guys who could pick up the slack. But if you get into the playoff moments, you know, like the four bounce buzzer beater type of moment where Kawhi's... Often bailing out their offense late with that incredible mid range game and the turnarounds and everything else. Are you concerned at all that, you know, maybe they're not a true uh, title contender this year? Because where do they go with the basketball late in the fourth quarter? Is Pascal ready to be that guy? Is Lowry going to have to do it more often? Can they just do it as a. Uh, you know, a by committee type approach late in games, are you really convinced that they have what it takes in those kinds of situations to get it done here? Um, Or is this going to be a situation where like maybe the pre Kawhi Raptors, right? Where uh, a lot of times late in games, they didn't necessarily have the answers they needed, in part because DeRozan just wasn't that guy and in part because they didn't have that shared experience yet.
2: Yeah, I think that's something that we won't know until we see it. But you know, just trying to compare this team with the pre-Kawhi, uh, you know, those DeRozan Lowry teams with Dwayne Casey at the helm. I mean, I just think that the the confidence that you get from winning a championship is humongous. Um, the as you said the cohesion with everybody on the same page the the different types of lineups that they play the different styles that they're able to deploy particularly on the defensive end and it is it is a leg, it's a fair concern i would say to not have a a guy who you know 100% is going to be able to close out a tight playoff game i mean i will say just this season you know they have the sixth best offense in the clutch uh, they have a top 10 defense in the clutch. They're 18 and 10 in those situations when uh, they're in those situations. So uh – it's going to be interesting. Obviously, the regular season is not the playoffs. And you want to see Pascal Siakam rise to a new level, a, a level that we did not see from him in the playoffs last year when he struggled a little bit uh, from, you know, in the first round, they had Jonathan Isaac on him, and he did a pretty good job in the second round. And bead was just, you know, he would sag off of Siakam and dare him to shoot. And the Bucks pretty much did the same thing. In the conference finals with uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, who you know they did not want to put Giannis on Kawhi, they just kind of let him roam off of Pascal, and that worked. So obviously, it's a different situation now. Pascal is hitting pull-up threes; he's way more confident from the perimeter. No one's going to let him shoot; that's just not a recipe for success. But I want to see if he can create shots for himself and others when defenses, the best defenses in the league, are gearing up to stop him in a seven-game series.
1: Yeah, I think that this team has bucked the conventional wisdom, which says you're going to fall to pieces when you lose your best player after a title season. And I think that they're about to, to buck the conventional wisdom, wisdom, which would say, okay, if you don't have that, you know, like prototypical go-to wing late in games, you're going to fall apart. To me, the regular season clutch numbers that you're describing are pretty darn convincing, especially because uh, every key member of their group is on the same page, right? They don't have any competing interests. Like, who, I mean, they have guys who are coming up on contracts, but they also, all those guys are, most of them, anyways, are either late in their career. Um, so, you know, it's not like you know, this this life changing moment for them, or it's a player like Fred Van Vliet who can feel very confident he's going to be taken care of because of the excellent season that he's had there in Toronto, right? So, um, you know, I just, to me, when I'm seeing what's driving this particular 14 game winning streak, It's just a lot of very intelligent, high IQ players who are bought into the vision, who are playing hard and who are playing hard for each other, right? That's the most important part. They're on the same page. If there's injuries, you just plug somebody else into the system and it goes forward. It's really hard to capture. You don't see it very often. You certainly rarely see it uh, after a superstar leaves to this same degree, but they've got it. I think they're really, really scary as a playoff threat, Michael. And I say this as someone who sort of has this perpetual daydream of Giannis enjoying a coronation this year. And I don't think that I've, you know, to be honest, have taken Toronto that seriously as a Bucks threat uh, until, you know, this recent winning streak. But when you look at a team that comes in, not only with championship confidence and that experience, not only with a great coach in Nick Nurse. Uh, who just seems to have this knack for pushing all the right buttons in a way that just Dwayne Casey never did there in Toronto. But you also have a team that comes in with zero pressure. Or expectations. I just think that they're so dangerous because of those unique circumstances, right? I mean, if they get down in a series, no one's going to say, oh, the Raptors are choking like they might have a couple of years ago. And look, we all enjoyed doing that. That was a really fun era. Calling the Raptors out for choking was just great times on basketball Twitter. (laughs) But they're not going to face that this year, you know? I mean, assuming that they get out of the first round easily, and, and I think that's a safe assumption. Like, if they're in a second round series, whether it's Boston, Miami, Philly, if they get down, uh, the sky won't be falling. Um, and if they happen to get up against a favorite team like Milwaukee, it's going to put all the pressure on the favorite. So uh, I don't know. Do you agree with my assessment there? Like, they're sneaky dangerous right now just because of where they are in the life cycle of their franchise and and the perceptions around uh, you know Kawhi Leonard's departure.
2: Yeah, I think you knocked that out of the park. I agree 100%. I would say that they are, uh, you know, right now – below the milwaukee bucks just in terms of eastern conference pecking order the bucks have rightfully separated themselves from everybody else they're 45 and 7 they're on a historic pace right now uh could win 70 games they have Giannis antetokounmpo who is ridiculous um I would say, you know, Toronto's right on par right, with the Boston Celtics, maybe a little bit in front of the Miami Heat right now. Uh, not just standings, just kind of how they're built and what I expect from them in the playoffs as well. And I would take Toronto, you know, if the Celtics, whichever one of those teams had home court advantage, I think is the one that I would select to advance if they were to face off in a playoff series. Um I would say the Raptors you know, are head and shoulders above the Philadelphia 76ers, I'd say, as we saw this past week with how they defeated the Indiana Pacers uh, two times, uh, including uh, this come-from-behind dramatic victory at home with Serge Ibaka hitting a three. It's just like when you need big shots, when you need big plays, they know where to go. They don't get flustered. They have extreme confidence. And I don't think anybody really wants to play them.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the home court thing about Toronto and Boston. I mean, can you imagine winning 14 straight games uh, and you only have a game and a half lead uh, over the Celtics uh, for that number two seed because Boston happens to be on a seven game winning streak themselves? I mean, it's impressive stuff going on uh, there and everybody knows I'm a child of the Western Conference, but even I can tip my hat to the way those teams are playing. The Philly thing is a great point too. Um, You know, we've been banging on them pretty hard here the last couple of weeks, but they might have the bigger star power if your stars aren't on the same page, or let alone even in the same book at this point, and you're going against a team that's as focused uh, and locked in as a a team like Toronto, um, that's a matchup where I would actually uh, you know favor the Raptors. And coming into the season, again, I wouldn't have said that. You know, I, I was ready to pencil in Milwaukee and Philadelphia for the Eastern Conference Finals. So uh, I think that says a little bit about Philadelphia, but it also says a lot uh, in favor of Toronto. Hey, Michael, one other thing that happened over the weekend, and I'm sure you saw this because it was frankly hard to miss by all the screaming going on on Twitter, was the controversy in Utah uh, in the in the closing moments of the Utah Jazz versus the Portland Trailblazers uh, game. Now, Utah wound up winning uh, just by a couple points, and I think the heated moment came when Damian Lillard drive, drove to the basket. Uh, he put a shot up off the backboard. It clearly hit the backboard like a second later, Rudy Gobert goaltends it. The referees do not call the goaltending violation, and because they didn't call it, uh, they weren't able to review that play and give the basket to Damian Lillard, so it just kind of goes the other way. Uh, The Blazers get jobbed, and they were very, very frustrated about it. You saw Lillard need to be kind of dragged off the court by security going after the referees. Afterwards, he unloaded in his post-game press conferences towards the referees. Uh, And then even on Twitter, he put out a couple profane tweets where he's basically saying he didn't want to hear the NBA's explanation for how they missed it or or the little apology that they always extend saying, hey, we've reviewed this after the fact and we know we got it wrong. Uh, he, He didn't want to hear that at all. So a messy situation all around. There's no question that the call was wrong. But what did you make of it, Michael? Because the Blazers escaped all punishment for the aftermath. And I can't really remember a situation like this where uh, you know, a player, especially a superstar-level player, goes on a diatribe on the court, a diatribe in the media, and then a diatribe on social media and gets away scot-free. What did you make of the whole thing? I mean, first of all, it sucks for the Blazers. They're <clears throat> they in a
2: playoff race. This was a, a significant loss for them. And if I'm Dame Lillard and I'm this, you know, human torch, and I've, I have have 42 points, as he did in that game, and he's 16 for 30, including uh, the missed a shot that should have been a goaltend and I'm on this just historic streak right now where no one can touch me and you know this is my like 44th minute on the floor I'm exhausted mentally and physically and you cheat me out of a basket that would have tied the game I'm gonna lose my mind so I see where Dame is coming from I see where the Blazers are coming from but I was surprised that they he did not get fined or there was no repercussions whatsoever. Uh, that's something that you just don't see from the league office.
1: Um, well, then yeah, again, me too, Michael. It bothered me, man. And let me just say, first of all, I mean, Lillard's on some like unanimous MVP Steph level type playing right now, isn't he? Like the only difference is that Steph didn't have to play in the fourth quarters that year because his team was so good. They were blowing everybody out. And then conversely, Lillard has to play every minute of every important moment because otherwise the team falls apart. Like, that's really the only functional difference between the quality of their play, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that's a really good point uh, and really speaks to how incredible Steph was during that, that season. And, but you know, the, the NBA is a lot cooler when he's also a flamethrower, and that would be awesome if he was healthy, too. Yeah. Um, I want to quickly just add something. Have you have you seen in on your Twitter timeline uh, the the, uh, the Portland Trailblazers' their official account has been promoting tweets uh, featuring a clip of CJ McCollum in the post game locker room after that game. Uh, complaining uh, about the call and you know I saw this last I've seen them multiple times over the weekend and the most recent one was right before we started recording this episode which I think is just the ultimate level of petty and I
1: don't know who's behind it but it's incredible Oh my god, I so I had not seen that. You're breaking news to me live on the air. First of all, that's hilarious and really inventive, and I'd love to be a part of the board room meeting or the email chain where that idea was conceived. <laughs> <laughs> like like how far can we push this? But look, Michael, this sets me up because this is gonna sound like people are gonna accuse me of being the police for this one. And I understand that. I'm I'm willing to take that heat this is just too much. Okay. And not specifically just that social media thing that you're describing where they're promoting tweets. Maybe they're able to like sell some jerseys and, and team hats and tickets off of the, the anger of Blazers fans of being aggrieved in that moment. But look, let's step back and think about, um, uh, the message that not disciplining the Blazers for all of these things and Lillard specifically kind of sends, whether it's to the referees, um, whether it's to observers or everyone else, because I feel like this kind of sets a new precedent. It's like, look, if you were clearly screwed and they were, now you can just kind of have any frustration response that you want uh, and that's going to be okay. And uh, one thing I look at it, Michael, you you can be right on the merits and wrong in your manner, And I say this as someone who's who's that way all the time. Like, for example, when the Houston Rockets don't win the NBA title, I will have been right on the merits, but I'm going to hold that over you for months and I'm going to bring it up at annoying times. It's going to be awkward for me. It's going to be awkward for you. It's going to be very awkward for the listeners. And in that moment, I'm going to be uh, wrong in my manner. Right. And this is something that comes up all the time, whether it's disputes, debates, disagreements, and just normal conversation. It's important to be right in your manner. It just is. And I understand all of Lillard's frustration. Like you you ran down brilliantly. He's been just playing phenomenal basketball, team on his shoulders. There's playoff implications and everything else. But you've got to remember, referees are not perfect. It's late in the game for them. These are split-second calls. They don't get them 100% accurate. They never have. They never will, no matter how much you complain. The referees are making a fraction of the money that the players are making. They have a tough life. I don't envy them in any way. And I think if you're the NBA and you just let all this stuff go, it sends a message to the referees that, look, we don't have your guys' back. Like if players are going to come after you, it's just kind of open season on the referees. I don't like that message at all. And I think part of the reason why he didn't get fined potentially would be that there's some sort of a conversation on the court where the referees uh, supposedly told the Blazers players, hey, it wasn't even close. And, you know, you guys have no reason to argue this and whatever else. And that would really, really anger me if I was Lillard and McCollum and these guys saying, what do you mean it's not even close? Like, show us some respect in how you're conversing to us. Um, But look, you know, ultimately, That's just another layer of adversity here. You have to control your response. You have to be productive with it. I mean, Lillard's on Twitter writing, hey, I've got plenty of money, basically daring them to fine him. And I just don't get how there's no fine or no punishment here at all. And I think if I was the referees or the referees union, I would be putting out a statement saying like, look, this is a a pretty dangerous, slippery slope here. Like if we're just going to allow extended criticism of calls Uh, especially in very heated moments, this could go to a pretty dark and ugly place pretty quickly. And that's not Lillard's fault, right? But that's just how, you know, uh, precedents work. You know, people are going to be pushing the line in favor of competitive advantages. And if they feel like they can do that, the referees are going to be the ones who winds up losing. And if the referees lose, I guess my argument is we all lose.
2: Ben, that's a that's a great cogent argument you made right there. I just want to say that if the Rockets do not win the title, I'm going to find all of your worst tweets and promote the (laughs) hell out of them. So good luck. Good looking forward to that.
1: Well, that's great. So you're gonna have the Blazers marketing budget uh, just trying to slander (laughs) me on social media for 48 hours. That would be a fair response, Michael. You might be right on the merits, but you would be wrong in your manner. That's all I'm going to say. Let's just all keep that in mind as we go forward in the heated moments of our day, right? It just doesn't do anyone any good uh, to respond to adversity like that.
0: After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed, and I thought, can I do this again somehow?
2: From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an
0: epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd, American Coyote.
2: Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.
1: Michael, uh, we have some amazing questions this week from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com. That's openfloormail at gmail.com. And we got uh, a real heater right off the bat. It came in a couple of weeks ago from Peter. That's right, a heater from Peter. He writes, is Trey Young the worst all-star starter ever, or just the worst all-star starter of our lifetimes? And Michael, I believe you've done some research to help answer this question. Is that right? I have done some research, yes, because <clears throat> I feel that I have to defend
2: Trey Young every single time people come at him with unfair attacks. And it's it's speaking of unfair, it's not fair to Peter, who submitted this question a, a little while ago, and we're kind of reading it now, a day after Trey Young scored 48 points against the unstoppable New York Knicks and their vaunted defense. So <clears throat> I there are a few players that I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll just run down the list of, of some guys and, and throw some names at you. And you tell me if you think that they had worse cases to start in the All Star game than Trey Young did. How does that sound?
1: It sounds great. You were Judge Pina last week. It sounds like you're making me Judge Ben. Is that what's happening here?
2: You are Judge Ben. Let's go. We are in your courtroom. Number one, first off the bat, just chronologically, DeMar DeRozan. He started two and three years ago. What what do you think think about
1: that? Michael, Demar's. i mean, look, you know me. I'm always crushing DeMar. He did not deserve to start those All-Star games, but he is more deserving than Trey from a winning perspective. Look, his defense wasn't great, but it's definitely better than Trey's. Um, I think if we look at the criteria we use for the All-Star starters, you know, individual numbers, translation to team success— where your team is on the standings, and, you know, two-way balance, impact, DeMar is clearly above Trey. I mean, come on. Trey is a really, really (laughs) rough all-star pick. I mean, to me, Trey is the 24th out of 24 all-stars this year in terms of most deserving, and you would never be able to say that about DeMar, even though he was a fringe pick a couple years for me.
2: Okay, that's fair. Uh, Next up, I'm going to go with Pau Gasol, uh in 2015 he started the All-Star game playing for the Chicago Bulls at the ripe age of 34. Oh. What do you man. think about that?
1: Man, man, man. Now that's a tough one. So he probably only got in cuz he was like technically a center, right? That was back before they did the front court and the back court designation, so you had to pick a center.
2: Yeah, I think that that's right.
1: Yeah, there was a bunch of really rough centers for the Eastern Conference there. A real stretch of them. At the same time I mean, Paul's still, Powell's still giving you more impact all around than Trey. His team was definitely better than the Hawks. I mean, this is just such an extreme example where a guy's numbers kind of carry an asterisk going into this conversation in Trey Young because their their team is so horrible and there's so little around him. I, I think that Powell is definitely the more conventional all-star pick than a Trey Young. I don't know if that makes him more deserving, but I wouldn't want to unseat him in this conversation strictly for Trey Young. So I'm still going to take Powell. I'm sorry, man. That's fair. I, I
2: disagree. So much of the fiber of my
1: being, every fiber of my being disagrees with that point, but it's okay. We'll move on. No, no, no. Uh, we'll uh, explain that. I mean, why is that one uh, kind of needle you so much? I mean, what's the defense of Trey? Just that well, I'm just if like, you put him Trae, on an average team? No, I mean, tra- look, if,
2: if you put... 34-year-old Pau Gasol on this Atlanta Hawks team, they're a disgrace. Like, what is—like, are they—they have easily the worst offense in the NBA when he's on the floor. They have—I mean, Pau Gasol at that that point was not, like, this ridiculously talented defensive player. I mean, when he went to the Spurs right after that, he was this rim protector, and they wouldn't let him leave the paint. But, like, in the NBA today, it would just be—it's difficult to compare eras. I mean, the league has already changed so much since then, but I I just— Trey Young is just an incredible offensive player. No, so.
1: Fair points. I think the, the real value of this exercise is just to point out how weak these Eastern Conference All-Star rosters are. I mean, come on. None of these guys would ever, ever start in the Western Conference. But I digress. Continue. Speaking of, <laughs> next, up.
2: <laughs> next up we have Andrew Bynum, who started wow. the 2012 All-Star game.
1: So what are your thoughts here, Ben? Andrew Bynum, not only did his career end abruptly and age the opposite of gracefully, but I also think he's a strong candidate for one of the guys who would have adjusted the worst to pace in space, right? Like I just remember when he like just speared JJ Barea out of the air during the playoffs that one year in one of the most vicious acts we've ever seen. I think that would have just repeated itself over and over and over out of frustration over the last six years as teams try to like, you know, force him to to guard like small forwards in space and like super small ball lineups. I just don't think he would have had any patience at all for, you know, defending in space or rotating defensively or any of the other things that have annoyed big men here over the last five years. At the same time, though, come on, man. Bynum had a nice stretch. Look, the window was only open briefly. Right, it was only a little draft, but he was a really good two-way player. You know, seemed like a future Hall of Famer there for about 18 months. So <laughs> I, I think I think Trey Young is clearly a less deserving All-Star starter than Bynum. Sorry. Uh, okay, uh, just real quick, the uh,
2: the going back to the Berea uh, hip check when he was midair. I'm looking at. Bynum's game log from the following season, and uh, he was suspended for the first four games, which I forgot about, which is just really hilarious. Could you imagine, like, your last moments of one season, like, you you take your jersey off, you're in disgrace, you just got ejected, and then, like, however many months later, your season begins, you're looking to kind of
1: reinvigorate yourself, and you're suspended for the first four games. That is terrible. That's amazing, and honestly, it would have ruined my whole summer if I was him. Now, for him, he probably just didn't even care. He was like, whatever, Bray deserved it. That was probably his mentality, but uh, it would hang over my entire summer. Like, I don't know if I would be going on vacation if I was him or I think he liked computers at some point or cars you know, all these different weird interests that he had. He obviously went bowling and got injured at one point, but I think it would ruin all of those things. It would ruin the time tinkering uh, on the computer. It would ruin the bowling matches and everything else because the whole time I would just be like regretting that, knowing I wasn't going to be able to like make it right until a week into the next season, how it was just hanging over me for months and months. It would really screw with my mind. So maybe the NBA should do this more, you know? Like we maybe we need more like... <laughs> ultra-delayed punishment to really force people to, like, reckon with their uh, with their behavior. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good call. <laughs> uh, moving
2: on to uh, my next selection of an all-star starter who was undeniably worse and less deserving than Trey Young. Uh, Allen Iverson in 2009, when he was traded to the Detroit Pistons after three games in the Denver Nuggets, uh 33 years old at the time completely inefficient borderline washed up starts
1: in the all-star game i mean how do you how do you make the case here so it's one thing if you're going after bynum michael because there's not going to be any (laughs) bynum fans like coming out of the woodwork to defend him but you're going at an absolute legend in a ai right now and you want me to rule against him um I mean, it, look, it was a long, slow, sad decline for Iverson, and he was definitely already into it at that point. But that was just a pure fan vote, you know? And I mean, Iverson captured so many people's imaginations. Uh, if you're talking about only on his on-court play, I think you've you've got a strong point here. I, I do think that Trey has been more deserving than that version of Iverson. Um, and what frustrates me, though, is it's a reminder that like the new and improved all-star voting system was supposed to be able to prevent just fan votes from carrying the day. And I understand why Trey is popular. There's no doubt. Um, but if we had the current system, Iverson probably doesn't start because the media and the and even, maybe even the players might go a different direction with that vote. And somehow Trey made it through that entire system unscathed and still has a starting spot. It just ba- it blows my mind. It baffles me. I, I don't get it. And it's really frustrating. But point taken, I will give him over last legs Iverson uh, I will give Trey Young the nod.
2: You know why Trey Young skated through Ben because he's great. That's why. <laughs> so <laughs> my my, uh, my last one, this is just the this is the worst all-star starter I could find going back to two thousand and four. Um, this man shot forty percent from the field uh, that season, and he averaged sixteen points a game. Mr. Steve Francis, come on down.
1: Wow, was that one like influenced by maybe the Houston Rockets Yao Ming fan contingent? Just voting, you know, voting en masse uh, like the Chinese fans—is that possible? That's a
2: hundred percent clearly what happened here.
1: Well, clearly we need to have a country that's going to just back Trey, right? Because we've seen it with Luca, we've seen it with Giannis. Where like if you have a country that all they do is just vote for you, you can get just insanely high All Star totals. Uh, I don't know what country is going to take up the Trey Young cause but uh, certainly, okay, I'm going to put him over Steve Francis. Great research by you. You've proved that Peter was wrong, that Trey Young is not the worst all-star starter ever, and not even the worst all-star starter of our lives, unless you're really like a a six-year-old kid or something, but he's bad. Come on, Michael. You can admit that he's bad. You said he wasn't 24th out of 24 for you. Who did you have above Trey, or who is Trey above, rather, on your all-star pecking order this year?
2: Uh, Luca, LeBron, Giannis. Oh Kawhi. no! no. <laughs> <just> Come <laughs> on, take this question seriously, for real. Um, I would say, I mean, I would take Trey just on the on merit and just as someone I'd rather have on my team over Sabonis for sure. Um, I would say there's a toss up between. Actually, I'm not even going to go there because I know you're going to dispute it. But okay, how about him and Westbrook?
1: That's a pretty good one. <laughs> now you've boxed me into a corner. The, the player that I love, to, you know, disparaging the most of any other these days. Um, I think that if we're looking at the criteria, like I was mentioning earlier, two-way play impact on winning and everything else, I think Sabonis has a real strong argument. And Westbrook's really come along here recently, as much as it pains me to say that, Um so I'm still pretty firmly that Trey should be 24th. I just have a hard time with all of his numbers and everything else. And that's not to say that he couldn't earn it by my criteria as soon as next year. I mean, I could definitely picture that. Uh, I just don't think that this was the year. All right. We got another great question here on the All-Star roster. It comes in from Arnis from Latvia. and He writes, I write to you from laser unicorn land. That's right, Latvia. I thought about the latest trend in the NBA to be upset about, and it's guys whining for not making it into the All-Star game. So he's talking about the snubs. His proposal to fix this snubs problem is to have 30 All-Stars, so you expand each roster from 12 to 15 players, Michael, and then each NBA team, all 30 NBA teams, gets only one representative, and those teams have to decide their own representative. So for example... LeBron and Anthony Davis aren't going to both be all-stars they just have to pick one and that's the team's uh representative uh Arnes's idea here is that you would get rid of all the snub talk you would have a more balanced and representative all-star game that includes everyone you know it's an inclusive uh, you know it's almost like uh you know presidential primary or something everybody's getting in on the action um <laughs> What do you think, Michael? Is is this better or worse than the current system? And how do you think the internal voting would go where, you know, you're trying to decide between LeBron and Anthony Davis, uh, you know, Paul George or Kawhi Leonard? Like, what do you think?
2: The Iowa caucus of all-star selection. Um, please, please no.
1: And actually, <laughs> would it surprise anyone if the NBA was using the Iowa app uh, to help with these all-star <laughs> things? I mean, I think there had to be some hacking for how many votes Trey Young got. But anyway, whatever. Fair um, enough. Um... No, I, I don't like this idea
2: at all for a variety of reasons. I'm sorry. Uh, number one, I, I think it's a great way to just poison every locker room in the league. I could totally see guys who are more than deserving of being all-stars not getting into the game because of something that a teammate did slightly better or, or a teammate being slightly more popular than they are or whatever, what have you. Um but like it's also like the All-Star game is to see the best players. And so if you're if you have a format where Lebron or Anthony Davis does not qualify, your format is incorrect and no one wants to see someone from the Orlando Magic, be it Evan Fournier or Nikola Vucevic, or, you know, no one wants to see uh, someone from the Sacramento Kings this season.
1: I'll, I'll do respect <laughs> to De'Aaron Fox. Like, it what, just... what about the Knicks after they've traded Marcus Morris? Like, who's their representative, you know?
2: Yeah, that that's just really, really dark. I mean, Reggie Bullock has been playing lights out lately, but I, I, I don't want to see him at All-Star Weekend. <laughs>
1: Sue me. Um, so you'd rather it's... see AD than Reggie Bullock? That's crazy, man. Where do you come up with? <laughs> I'm just, yeah. I think um, it's a very interesting idea from our Latvian listener. Um, I too am annoyed by all the whiners and the complainers, but I'm not that annoyed. Let me just put it that way. All right. Um, one more quick one on the uh, All Star snubs. We got a, an email from Michael, and it wasn't you. It was actually a different Michael, and he writes. Guys, I listened to your All-Star Selections episode and loved it, but I was surprised that uh, both Ben and Michael had Paul George firmly on your roster as a reserve. Full disclosure, I'm a Pacers fan, but I still like Paul George because I remember how bad things were for five years before we drafted him. Um, when healthy, George is a potential MVP and an all-star starter, but he hasn't been healthy enough this year. And I don't think he deserved an all-star reserve spot on your rosters. And as it turned out, Michael, you were right. He didn't get the all-star reserve spot. He told uh, media members when I asked him that he didn't feel like he deserved it. So he actually went the other way from the whiners and the complainers and basically said, look, I acknowledge the weakness of my case, which is that I was hurt for a lot of the season. And I'm looking forward to watching Kawhi Leonard in the All-Star game from a beach, uh, an undisclosed beach. So uh, uh, that's how seriously he cared about uh, his quote-unquote snubbing. Michael, uh, we should look back on this one, though, because do you think that you and I just fell into a trap of, you know, making reputation picks on Paul George's behalf?
2: Yeah, I, I, I could, speaking for myself, I'm definitely guilty of it. And uh, the, Michael here, though, the, the emailer is not the first person to point it out to me after our all-star selection episode first aired. Uh it was definitely a reputation pick for me above anything else. Uh, you know, Paul George when healthy this season has been really good. The Clippers have been incredible when he is on the floor with Kawhi Leonard in particular. Um and he's just he's one of the best two way players in the league. And the all star game is a celebration of the best all around players. So he, that's why he was on my team. I mean, he made he was, uh, you know, top three and MVP last season. I don't know if that's something people have already forgotten right behind Giannis and James Harden. Um, with Russell Westbrook as his teammate before the shoulder injury kind of derailed their season. Right. And he's also uh, just been
1: incredible this year, too. When healthy, he's been a stud and, you know, playing for one of the best teams in the Western Conference. I mean, I think that his case is really, really strong across the board, except for the availability factor. And I think ultimately, like, it comes down to him versus Brandon Ingram. He's better than Ingram offensively, defensively. His team's better, the winning, the translation to winning, all of it. But the big hangup is that, you know, Ingram has been on the court a lot more than Paul George has. And, you know, when I was making my picks, uh, it was before Paul George's most recent injury. And I think that's kind of what tripped me up. I just assumed he was going to be back on the court and healthy. And I was willing to excuse his shoulder absence off the top of the season because he had played so well. But, you know, the Nixon bruises along the way should be taken into account. And I think the arguments on behalf of, of Ingram are very convincing um, you know, or even just the arguments against Georgia are pretty convincing as well. Hey, Michael, here's a crazy question from Kevin in Australia. Shout out to all the boomers who are always listening. He writes, the trade that I wanted to see at the deadline and that I want to see this summer is Joel Embiid for Carl Anthony Towns. If you put Embiid in Minnesota, they're probably better. And if you give Philly an above 40% shooting center, who hopefully will play defense when he's paired with Simmons... That could be a squad. What do you think, Michael? This is a, a nice outside the box idea from Kevin in Australia. Are you in or out on this trade, uh,
2: Kevin? This is genius. I am jealous that I did not think of it and write a 2,000 word column about why it works for both sides. Unfortunately, we're not going to see a trade like this. I would I would be highly skeptical of it actually happening because front offices are uh you know they pride themselves in 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 loving what they own more than what is out there. So I think Philadelphia's front office thinks that Joel Embiid is better than Towns, and Minnesota's front office thinks that Towns is better than Embiid. So fit issue aside uh, you make a lot of really good points. And I think that having Towns, a three-point shooter who is different in terms of how he gets his three-point shots and the volume he takes them and the accuracy than, than Embiid, who's, who likes to shoot threes, but it's not the same. He does not space the floor. Teams want him to shoot threes. Teams do not want Carl Anthony Towns to shoot threes. So if you put him next to Simmons, it just increases the driving lanes. And then you add in uh, you know the defensive issues that that Towns has had in Minnesota you put him in a different system with Al Horford and <clears throat> Ben Simmons who's going to make an all defensive team and that's just a that's just a really interesting situation now i don't another reason why i don't think that it's going to happen is that if you're Minnesota you trade for Joel Embiid and uh, you know he's leaving the second he can in free agency or he might not even take the flight to Minnesota that's the type of Person I think we've seen from person we've we've seen this year from Joel Embiid. So, uh, you know, on paper this is brilliant, and I would love to see it actually happen because I think both sides would be the better for it. But in reality, we're just we're never gonna see it.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot that goes into trading superstar level players, and to try to trade two of them for each other, I mean, there's so many extenuating circumstances beyond just the basketball fits, uh, as Michael described. Here's one of them, though, Michael. I mean, put yourself in Elton Brand's shoes, right? Like you've painstakingly constructed this roster with, uh, you know, trying to build around Simmons and Embiid. And you've you've taken the Jimmy Butler plunge, then you've traded him away, then you've paid Tobias Harris all that money. And, you know, you've turned your roster over multiple times trying to get at work with, the, uh, with these guys. If you do reach the summer and things do not go well in this playoffs, and you really are considering this idea of an Embiid trade wouldn't it be really hard to resist a spite trade after all of these years of maneuverings? Like I'm picturing the Embiid trade that will need to also include Simmons. So you're sending those two guys who haven't been able to make it work with each other together to whatever their next destination is. And so here's what I propose. What about if it's Simmons and Embiid for Carl anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell? And you basically are just swapping those duos into their new environments. And you're saying, you know what, Simmons and Embiid, Thanks for nothing over the last 3 years. You're going to be up to stuck with each other until your new team trades you and splits you up. What do you think about this uh, devious idea uh, on my behalf? I love where your head goes
2: sometimes, Ben. <laughs> this is just this is perverse. Uh, <laughs> um, if you know, it, it's as difficult enough to make one trade one superstar, I don't think that they're going to be trading their the the bedrock of their respective organizations. Um, but yeah, I like, I like where your head's at. And I just want to quickly throw out, like as we're recording, uh, ESPN's Brian Windhorst has reported that teams around the league are actually thinking that Embiid could be traded soon. So um, that's an interesting wrinkle here. So this question is actually, it seems insane, but it's also steeped in reality.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, things have been so choppy there up and down, all the red flags, you know, locker room stuff and, and, uh, you know, sideways comments and inconsistent effort and everything else points to, you know, a shakeup coming at some point, especially if there's a disappointing point uh, postseason.
0: You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation.
1: Okay, a couple more here to close it out. This one comes in from Matthew, and he just writes in all capital letters, Gerson Rosas is the Messiah so clearly Matthew Michael is a little bit higher on the Timberwolves trade of Andrew Wiggins for uh you know D'Angelo Russell than we were and look obviously we're already moving ahead to how can we <laughs> break up uh you know towns and Russell and everything else which is just really poor taste from us frankly um, in that last question I guess we were being a little bit facetious but um I think Matthew represents some real genuine optimism that came out of Minnesota over the last 72 hours. And you saw it at the uh, airport where the, you know all the employees and fans are meeting Russell. And you know, he went out to the center court uh, and gave a little pregame speech trying to fire up the crowd a little bit. What would you think of that speech? This, <laughs> the speech was... Uh, Interesting. It looked
2: like D'Angelo was not aware that he was going to make a speech until five minutes before someone passed him a microphone. Uh, <laughs> it's it reminded, always dangerous. It reminded me of someone at a rehearsal dinner where, you know, they're four cocktails in and they someone asks if anybody wants to say a few words to the bride and the groom and they take the mic and they just have no idea what's coming out of their mouth. So that's that's something that Minnesotans have to look forward to uh, for the next three or four years is just the spont- spontaneous brilliance
1: from D'Angelo Russell. Um, yeah. He has this affect where he's like 25% disconnected from reality at all times. I think it's intentional. And if it is intentional, he's pulling it off. If it's not intentional, I'm worried about it. Frankly, I'm worried either way. I would just prefer someone fully connected to reality. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's I guess it's his thing. So he's going to go with it. But anyway, I guess my, my real point here, though, Michael, was we should engage in these uh, pro Timberwolves voices a little bit here and walk through why they're so excited. And I think one aspect that I definitely missed in my post-trade coverage was this idea that trading Wiggins for them is addition by subtraction. And you could talk about all the benefits of having Wiggins in Golden State, the fit is better than Russell, uh, Harrison Barnes 2.0, you're getting something back in the series of trades that started with Kevin Durant's departure and everything else. But for Minnesota, I think their whole franchise really plateaued when Wiggins plateaued, and basically in years three and four, right? And I think it had an impact on um, you know the Butler experience, no question. I mean, he's he's ripping Wiggins on his way out, or, or ripping the young guys on his way out. I don't think that's you know some big secret. I think it also had an impact on Towns and his night-to-night commitment uh, effort, because if you're the superstar player and you're saying this guy's my sidekick. Can I count on him? You know, those are tough questions to be asking. It's hard to stay motivated there. And so I do think that there will be a natural relief of tension, a natural increase in happiness and excitement by just being able to flip the page there. And that's not a huge knock on Wiggins. I just, it's a natural thing that happens if a guy comes in with huge expectations and he's the number one pick and he gets the big contract um, and everything else. So, you know, to me, um, yes, they, they parted with a lot of pieces to get there you know, the Teague factor, the Covington factor, the Wiggins factor, and everything else. But it is uh, reasonable to say, if you're a Timberwolves fan, look, those guys weren't necessarily long term pieces for us. And especially in, in the case of Wiggins, like. They could definitely be better off without him and just, you know, his role on the team or, you know, the role they were trying to cram him into, it just wasn't working for either side. And I think Wiggins winds up being a winner leaving there. And you can make a strong case that like just, you know, changing the page had to be done. Uh, Russell is a better fit for Minnesota. Uh, You you can make that argument uh, for sure. Uh, And that, uh, you know, if they weren't going anywhere, why cling to that group? Yeah.
2: What you just said makes a lot of sense. I think if you're, uh, Rosas building a championship contender and sustaining it in a small market is really difficult. And where I am skeptical that this is going to work is you've tied yourself to Towns, you've tied yourself to Russell, you do not have cap space for the foreseeable future. Um, and giving up that first round pick in 2021, like, I don't want to say this is an all in push because it's not, you have, you know, you have your pick in this year's draft, which is going to be pretty good, uh, despite this draft, not being full of the type of talent, uh, supposedly, um, that you want if you're Minnesota, but then you lose, you're, you're likely to lose next year's unless everything goes really wrong or you get some incredible lottery luck and you get that top three pick, uh. So losing that is is a huge cost, I think, and I don't know if it was worth, uh, worth it to just acquire D'Angelo Russell, who is not someone like Kevin Durant. He's not a solidified superstar who is definitely going to vault you into the playoff picture. Uh, you know, we just saw, you know, the numbers that he put up in Golden State were very impressive, but they were the worst team in the league when he was there. So I, I have questions, and... Another thing, like you said, that getting Russell will improve the mood of your franchise player in Towns. If that is the
1: case, I don't really want to build around Towns in the first place. Is that fair? Uh, He's getting a lot of flack for personality and leadership and everything else, and he's never proven it. So I think that a lot of that criticism is warranted. But I mean, I, I try to put myself in his position and I don't know how I would be able to keep it together based on the last five years in Minnesota. I mean, first of all, the weather would definitely get to me. I mean, that's a real factor. Second of all, the constant changing of pace uh, or, or changing of uh, direction with the front office, with the Jimmy situation, uh, with Wiggins not being able to kind of do it and put it over the top. And even just the point guard options they've cycled through there over the last few years, all of it would be a real bummer. And you know some guys are really built to be leaders some guys are built to be like you know positive contributors uh, in winning environments and i just don't think he has that force of personality to turn around an entire market that's you know so used to losing and has been stuck in that uh in that mold for years and years and years he needed help you know and i think it's okay i don't think that's some big uh you know, uh, mark against his character. Uh, he he just wasn't capable of doing it single-handedly, and he wasn't really getting a lot of help from Wiggins on that front. So, um, now are you? Am I gonna argue that him and Russell together are going to be the the duo that changes everything? No, I, I'm not gonna argue that. Um, but uh, I, I don't think that I'm out forever on Carl Anthony Towns, like some people seem ready to be.
2: Oh, I'm not out forever on him, but I just I, I'm skeptical. I'll just
1: leave it at that for for sure. I hear you. Hey, we got one last question here and it's a really nice email uh, from Dave in San Diego. Okay. And he writes in, I'm a diehard Cleveland Cavaliers fan, but I've got a quick Kobe story for you. Warning though. It's not for the squeamish. And Dave writes in April, 2003, I was cooking professionally in Delray beach, Florida, but my chef's knife technique was apparently less than professional. And during the start of a busy Sunday night, I cut the tip of my left pinky finger about 80% of the way off while slicing up a ball of buffalo mozzarella. And Michael, the only thing I can picture here is him dribbling his blood on the mozzarella as if it's sort of like marinara sauce. I don't know (laughs) why my mind is going there, but that's the mental image I've got. Anyway, Dave continues. It quickly became apparent that stitches were necessary and the restaurant got someone to drive me to the ER. I distinctly remember sitting in the waiting room watching the Kobe and Shaq Lakers in the playoffs, just utterly dominating the other team. I'm 99% sure it was game one of Lakers Timberwolves on April 20th, in which Kobe scored 39 points. In any event, I just remember Kobe being relentless and thinking, man, these guys are unstoppable. Eventually, they called my name at the hospital and they stitched me up, at which point I did the most Kobe thing possible and went back to the restaurant to finish my shift. I didn't miss any time from that, and a week later, I was doing a passable job of canoeing through the Everglades, although admittedly I was howling each time I bumped that finger. I have never repeated that mistake since, and I still think of Kobe on a weekly basis from cutting my finger. Basically, anytime I find myself using suboptimal knife technique, I think of the Mamba mentality. So incredibly personal email here from Dave, and uh, obviously he paints a very vivid picture with the blood spewing all directions and his finger just kind of like hanging off the edge. Um, So love that email. I think it's another example, Michael, of how personally a guy like Kobe, who had such a long extended career, could connect with people in their own daily lives. I mean, it's very unique. You don't always see that. Um, and clearly it's stuck with uh, Dave for a long time. Uh, I'm curious, as we're heading into All-Star Weekend, it's my last question for you. What kind of tributes do you expect? I mean, I know the NBA is is redoing the scoring of the actual All-Star Game. So the fourth quarter, it's going to count up to 24 in honor of his jersey number. Uh, You know, Dwight Howard said maybe there could be a a dunk contest thing for Kobe because he had talked to Kobe about maybe being you know a part of his uh, you know his contest work. I mean, what else do you expect, or what do you think the vibe is going to be like around remembering Kobe uh, at All Star Weekend? And do you like the changes, by the way, for the uh, the All Star game? Yeah, real quick, I I
2: do like the changes because I want these guys to be as competitive as possible. Number one priority is for everyone to be healthy and not get injured because that would be just the all-time bummer but uh, you know assuming that everyone is able to stay on two feet uh, i want everyone to try hard and i want to see a competitive basketball game that goes down to the wire and i want to see you know which team uh, who's on the court in crunch time basically and I, it really what's really fascinates me about all-star the all-star game is just how it just sets the the hierarchy and the pecking order of, of superstars. These are the best of the best of the best players in the world. And who's on the court battling it out for victory at the very end. That's just really interesting to someone like myself who loves the NBA. Um, to speak about the, the tributes, I think it would be really cool if, uh, the actual all-star game had the, uh, eight second violation and 24 second violation, uh, tributes at the beginning of the actual contest and actually every single contest that includes rising stars
1: and and everything else oh man michael i didn't even think of that this could be the first 24 second violation in all-star game history right i mean (laughs) 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 like honestly i'm not trying to be funny about it like has there that can't have happened very many times no
2: exactly exactly um so I think that that should definitely happen. And I mentioned this on an earlier episode, but it would be awesome if everyone who's participating in the duck contest did a, a Kobe dunk that, that he did. They tried to pull one off from the 97 dunk contest, I want to say. Um that he won when he went between the legs. And there are some other dunks in there that I think people are would be able to replicate. Even Dwight Howard, uh, he should be practicing. <laughs> um, so I think that would just, that would be really cool and a really nice touch.
1: Yeah, I'm a little nervous that the count up to 24 thing is going to backfire a little bit because it's so easy to score in the All-Star game that... Uh, you know, it just could be a situation where like it's over before we want it to be over. But maybe what's going to happen is both teams ratchet up the defensive intensity for that quarter because they feel like, hey, you know, let's go out here and honor Kobe, something along those lines. And we get a really competitive uh, stretch of play. And that would be amazing. If that's how it plays out, uh, that would be just phenomenal and a perfect tribute for him. I'm with you on all the dunk contest stuff. I want to see throwback Kobe jerseys. You know, DeMar DeRozan wore a Kobe uh, rookie jersey before the Spurs Clippers game the other night. It was just incredible visual to see. I want to see different Kobe era jerseys throughout the dunk contest and tribute dunks is just a great idea from you. I also think at All-Star Media Day, we are going to see all sorts of guys come forward with their best Kobe memories because they know they're going to get asked. I think people around those guys are going to be kind of coaching them up a little bit and say like, hey, make sure you have a good Kobe answer uh, because you know the media, in, uh, especially the international media, attention is just going to be very, very intense. And so I'm looking forward to seeing you know what players share uh, as well. I, I think that could be a really nice tribute to Hey, Michael, we've come to the end of another episode of Open Floor, and a quick programming note, you and I are going to double back later this week, and we're going to do an All-Star Weekend preview before we get to Chicago. So we're going to lay out all the events, pick our favorites to win it, run through everything, and also probably uh, take some more questions from the Open Floor Globe on the All-Star Weekend experience itself. So go ahead and email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail.com at gmail.com and michael they can find us on apple Podcasts by searching for open floor that's two words when you find our page scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word michael is on twitter and instagram at michael v as in victor pina i'm on instagram at Ben.golliver. i'm on twitter at ben be sure to go that to that page on twitter Uh, look at my uh, bio. It will have a link to my Washington Post weekly newsletter. This week, I have previewed the Slam Dunk Contest, contestant by contestant, telling you what to expect. It was a fun thing to write, and I think it'll be a fun thing for you guys to read as well. Hey, Michael, until later this week, when I will see you in Chicago, I can't wait. I will talk to you. See you soon,
2: Ben.